Well, hello. Well, thank you for tuning in to Lesson 4.4 on Play. I'm Tom and my lovely friend here, James. Uh, we're both here to teach you a little bit about play. So, I mean, the quick recap from the last lesson that you would have seen us in, um, if you don't remember, we're from Brisbane. Uh, um, James and I are both physiotherapists. James runs the TFC Australian chapter and I'm a physio who's currently working in private practice and sort of together we've done a lot of work trying to help build out certain models of programs for the soulmate and other things within TFC and myself, I am a foot nerd and I've been through the program. So yeah, they're very excited to come and talk about play, which is pretty yeah. fun. Um, it's, it's definitely concept in TFC, isn't one it? of the most fun concepts that we, that we can talk <laughs> about really. Um, and yeah, another one of our favorites, it's something that we uh, incorporate a lot into obviously our own lives and try to incorporate uh, I know you try to incorporate levels of that in um, your clinic clinical work and and stuff with patients and obviously uh, a lot of what you do and what we do is helping athletes to return to play or to keep playing for longer and so it's a it's a really nice central concept to what we do and and how we live and an anecdotal story, I just remember one of the first times I went into your apartment, you actually had players the way up on the whiteboard. <laughs> yeah. Right next yeah. to the Hackmitten school. That was right there. So it's <laughs> ever since the first time. Yeah, it's been there ever since I first <laughs> met you. It's a good tagline. It is. It is. Anything rhyming. Yeah. And and it is. It, we really think that play is the way to create sustainable movement habits i think and also mm. to create adaptable resilient bodies and that's something that we'll obviously go through in more detail uh, throughout the podcast but we figured it'd be good also just to start off with a definition of play and we've made an adapted definition from dr stuart brown who's he's actually the head and, and i think the founder of the national institute of play which sounds like a pretty cool institute um, and he, and he, he literally wrote the book on play. It's called Play by Dr. Stuart Brown. <laughs> and uh, that'll be one of the resources that we recommend along with um, Playing with Movement by Todd Hargrove and some other um, books and podcasts. But this definition that we've adapted uh, from Stuart Brown is play is any voluntary, apparently purposeless activity that has potential for improvisation and provides a sense of freedom from time, as well as a diminished consciousness of self, all of which create an inherent attraction and what he describes as a continuation desire. So a lot of words there. Very fancy definition for the word play, fancy. isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's quite a doctor, a doctor definition, but uh, a lot of really good stuff in there. So it's essentially what that's saying is you're taking part in an activity for the sake of the activity itself. It doesn't necessarily have to have a purpose outside of just enjoying that activity. Um, you get that freedom from time and self and you're not, so, yeah, you're not so self-conscious and thinking about what other people might think of you while you're doing that activity. You're, you're uh, just fully focused and present in that activity. And also it, it has an inherent, uh, what he calls attraction and continuation desire. So inherently you actually want to go and do that activity and continue doing that activity uh, as opposed to feeling like you have to, because um, you know, because you want to be fit or you want to 
you want to connect or whatever, um, it's it's sort of inherently attractive and makes you want to keep doing it. So, and and I think one of the key, the like my favorite words in the definition is like the improvisation. Like mm. it, it's saying, hey, there's a lot of room to explore here. There's a lot of room to move. There's there's no right way or wrong way. It's all just you kind of make it up as you go. And that's kind of what play is, whether that is, say, something like hacky sack or hack mitten or playing football or just generally doing any sort of task or, or anything that, you know, can be put under that play banner. It's quite fun. It's not it's not rigid and, and there's a lot of space to explore and be yourself, which is really cool. And it's yeah. a really cool way to look at rehab, training and life, really. Yeah, and I think that a few points that you just touched on there is... Uh, sort of is well described by Todd Hargrove in the book Playing with Movement. And obviously, you know, play is a, a very broad topic. We're mostly going to be focusing on movement play today because that's uh, where we have the most experience, I think, and, and also feel like the most benefit can come. But Todd Hargrove's book is a really, really good read for exploring all of that. And he has a few or a number of different characteristics of play that he refers to. So one is it's intrinsically motivating, which is what we were saying before about being, um, you know, it's in doing it for the sake of the activity itself, not for the rewards that you get in the future. It's explorative, it's creative, um, it involves tinkering. So that's, that's, that sort of, they're all very similar. So you're exploring different ways of doing things and tinkering around with different variables to find what you get in and what results you get. And then, and then that helps you figure out how to do things in a way that gets you the result you want rather than a very structured, uh, you know, progressive approach where it's like, you have to do this step and then this step and then this step, it's a lot more variable and you can play around with those variables. Um, and then also movement play can be risky and yeah. my favorite is, word in, in his explanation there, I think it's a great word. It is. It is a great word and risk people or society in general has become, I think, increasingly risk averse. Obviously you need to manage risks, um, and not be doing things, uh, dangerously or, you know, just doing anything you want without any level of skill. But if you do expose yourself to a certain amount of risk, in especially in uh non-threatening like non-threatening situations basically or non-life-threatening especially or where there's elements of risk but it's controlled um to a degree i think that's a really good way to learn risk management and to provide that experience to yourself so that in the future you can evaluate situations and risks even better and I think that's the, we'll, get, we'll touch on like the personal play identity later on, but when you get to a point of trying to take risks and you, you're learning about it, you're essentially creating that construct and it's not systematized as it has to be A, B, C, D, but by exploring the risk, you start to create that sort of little hierarchy or that system or this like heuristic of what is going to happen or what life could be. And you're essentially, you're just exploring the endless possibilities and you'll create something that looks semi-structured but unless you attempt it and figure out where the the high risk is and the low risk or where are you comfortable taking your risk you you don't really get that sense of fulfillment because mm. you, you, you you're not sure what you haven't really explored or you haven't tried to explore and i think that's why i like the word risky because it's sort of 
when people hear risk or risky, I think it's kind of framed negatively a lot of the time. Mm. Like, oh, that's a risk. It's like, it could be a beneficial risk and risk is not good or bad. It's just the word. And it's just a really good word to kind of wrap your head around because play should be risky. And I think it makes it, makes it more fun. It does. And a a good quote that I like here is uh, if you're careful enough, then nothing good or bad will ever happen to you. So you can Mm. wrap yourself in bubble wrap and cotton wool and, and avoid all risks or what seems like avoiding all risks, but even that in itself has a risk. Um, And, you know, a perfect example with movement is if you avoid as all the risks that you can, then your movement becomes very limited to only certain things and you can become sedentary in a lot of ways. And there's, you know, all life involves risks and it's about playing with variables and knowing your own limits and managing those risks as best you can. Um, So play, play is a really good way to do that. And And we'll, we'll explore that a bit more in the, as we talk through the evolutionary context as well. Yeah. And I, and I mean, we got that little piece there and it might just be worth touching on that when you're trying to create that definition, which is obviously quite hard, it's probably a good place to introduce the idea that the opposite to play isn't work. Now, like we haven't come up with the best way to describe it just yet, but essentially they're on some spectrum where work can be play and play can be work and they can intermesh well. And I can't remember if it was Dr. Stuart Brown or if it was Andrew Huberman who said it, but essentially the opposite to play is more like depression, right? Mm. Which is, quite a change in mindset i think for a lot of people because you're not looking at say work and play separately they can be the one and the same and they have that sort of common goal of being creative if you know you can intermesh them well and and, and use them appropriately in the right setting or the right context Mm -hmm. yeah and i i think from what i understand and from what i've read then i think the uniting factor here is that flow state and so the characteristics of play that that we've just listed and also the definition from Stuart Brown a lot of that is very similar to the character characteristics of flow which is described by Mahali Csikszentmihalyi in his book called flow um, and the idea is there that yeah work and play aren't completely opposite they are on that spectrum often work tends to be a bit more structured more repetitive progressive and extrinsically motivating so you do work say for example with movement you would do a workout or say um, some mobility work or strength training for the sake of improving your mobility and strength in the future you don't necessarily do it for the activity itself in the time but there are a lot of people who really enjoy strength training or mobility training and they really get into the Mm. flow of it and it does become quite explorative and creative and they have that playful element to their work, you know, air quotes work. Um, And similarly, when you're playing, a great example I like to use is jujitsu, but often jujitsu is like this playful martial art where you're wrestling someone, you're not actually trying to hurt them, but you're trying to um, put them in a position where they can't get out of or some kind of chokehold or an armbar, something that, you know, shows that they would submit, but, and it is quite playful. It's like, it's almost like a game of human chess, but it also feels like a lot of work. Like I've never worked so hard than when I'm wrestling someone else, but it's, it's this, that's where it's not so black and white between work and play. There is a lot of crossover, but I feel like the shared element there is the, 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 element of flow 
um, which yeah. I, I think, you know, it is probably a whole podcast in itself, but I'd recommend people, um, you know, there are some great podcasts, but also Mahali's book flow would be the best, um, best resource to go to for that. It's a good book. Definitely would recommend. We'll chuck that in the end of the show notes too, yeah. to people who want to read. But I suppose now we should move on to the evolutionary context, which yeah. is which is quite interesting, actually, that the paradox. And I think I first thought about this from you, listening to like your first sort of take on play and where it sort of came from, which is quite fascinating. Yeah, so it is quite interesting, the the apparent paradox of play, because... At first glance, it may seem like play doesn't really provide any specific survival value because if you, let's say, let's just use the example of say children or young animals. So all intelligent animals play and we know that the more intelligent the animal, the more it tends to play. Um, And so if we didn't need it evolutionarily, then it wouldn't have continued in as a, as a behavioral trait. And Mm. At first glance, like I said, it's it's like, well, it expends energy. It exposes you to risk. It um, doesn't really provide you with any food or shelter necessarily. Like if you imagine a group of kids just out there chucking rocks at each other or climbing trees and things like that, it's, it's not very obvious uh, immediately how that's helping the survival. And if anything, it's actually like, a, like we talked about with risk. Someone, if a little kid's climbing a big tree, they, they may actually fall off and hurt themselves and then that, that might be the end of them mm. in a natural environment. Um, so it is, it's like, well, why do we play? Why has, it, why has it continued through our species and through all intelligent species? Um, and the interesting part there is it is how we actually learn and practice movements that help us survive. So if you imagine... Uh, a, let's say imagine for the easiest example is a group of children like we talked about you put them in a natural environment and leave them to their their own devices without their actual devices and they're going to be doing things like chasing after each other climbing trees throwing rocks and sticks um, maybe even wrestling and you know probably wrestling probably wrestling <laughs> um, and they're doing all of these movements and activities that are actually practice for what they would need to survive as an adult in a natural environment. So obviously chasing each other is practicing either hunting or escaping a predator, Um, climbing up trees. Again, it's great for escaping predators or gathering food or surveying the area, Um, jumping, throwing, you know, all of these things that help us hunt or protect, you know, or with wrestling, it helps us protect our tribe um, from other humans or whatever, but all of these movements that we, we really do need to practice in order to become adaptable, resilient humans. And, you know, obviously, especially in that natural context. And the cool part is, is the brain rewards those behaviors with those feelings of those good feelings and that it makes it intrinsically motivated. The adults in the tribe don't have to tell the kids to go and, um, you know, climb a tree or wrestle each other or whatever. That, that's what they inherently want to do. And what something on the Huberman Lab podcast, which we'll link in the resources, that was really interesting is he talks about it, how play is homeostatically regulated. And so if you restrict play, 
It's similar to eating and sleeping. If you restrict eating and sleeping, then when you do get the chance to eat or sleep, then you'll generally do more of it. Um, and so similarly with play, if you restrict it over time, then you build up this sort of this play need and, and you'll actually want to play even more when you do get the chance to play. So that, that's quite interesting that it's so deeply embedded in our biology that it's actually homeostatically regulated. And this is a point after like listening to that podcast and thinking through some of the psychological like work and literature that I've read. And this is, this is going to be an interesting talking point is the idea that play can create, and it might actually be the evolutionarily defined way that we create hierarchies. And like the example that I said to you when we talked about, and I'd love to hear anyone's opinion on it is let's say if James and I play hacky sack together for the first time, neither of us have played before we start picking it up, we start hacking somewhere along the line inherently one of us will be probably slightly better at it than the other and that's going to come through just different experiences different lives different mobility name the list of things that could be affected but there's there's a whole host Mm -hmm. in that moment one of us will realize that they're better than the other one so let's say james is better than i and then i understand (laughs) that james is better than me in hacky sack which is the case in real life so we're (laughs) going to go with it that way essentially there becomes this hierarchy that i know that james is better than me and that's that's okay but in that moment in that play context there is this difference and it's a simple way of we've just played to create a hierarchy but it doesn't mean that that's it's a fixed thing it's just in the moment so we could always go if james stops playing and i kept playing for two more years i could become better than him or surpass his skill and the hierarchy could shift if we ever played again and it seems like play has this beautiful inherent way of creating structure throughout most of culture. So even if you look at, say, trying to become a CEO, the idea is that you want to become the boss. So the game is I want to progress up the ranks to get to the boss or I want to progress up the ranks to get X amount of dollars in my job. So the game is to work hard at one level, then you progress up the level by getting a promotion. And essentially it is trying to look at probably what you are saying from the evolutionary context, it, the brain rewards that. So mm. you get this, this hit of like dopamine, essentially, oh, I, I felt good and I got rewarded for that. I'm going to do it again. It's not, it's that, it's that's the sort of the blurred line between work and play. <laughs> if people really love their job and they are in that flow state, it's not for us to say if it's really work or play, it's just somewhere in between. Yeah. And yeah, very interesting to hear your thoughts on that concept, because when I said it to you the, the other week, it seemed it seems to fit really well, and I'm sure there's some flaws in it, but it's a really interesting like um, thought process. Well, it, it does make a lot of sense, and it, it I think it plays into my next point here where I talk, I've listed saying play helps us connect with our community. And so, you know, whether it's through games or dance or music or competitions, then we're actually able to more deeply connect with our friends and family and tribe as a whole. And obviously that allows us to build, you know, better um, and stronger social bonds that are very protective for us physically and mentally. But like you said, having those competitions and those times where we are sort of play fighting, whether it's, you know, literally play fighting or, you know, sports competitions and things like that, it does that competitive, that little element of competition and hierarchy actually makes us more likely to want to play more and want to get better at that activity. And so, you know, 
from that evolutionary context, it probably would be things like wrestling and, um, you know, knife fighting, sword fighting, you know, um, play fighting in a way, you know, people used to use wooden swords and you would have sword matches. Obviously the, the uh, risks were much lower, um, but then it would give you this idea of like, oh, okay, well, that person is way better than me. Like uh, that did not feel good at all to be so destroyed um, by that mm-hmm. person. I really want to get better so that I can actually compete with that person. Um, and similarly, you know, the person who destroys the other person, it doesn't actually feel that good to absolutely destroy someone at a, at a game or sport. It's actually, it's kind of, it feels um, I think, and I think most people bad. know that too, right? Yeah, like inherently, because if you're playing a game and let's say you're playing a game of soccer football and you're winning 10, 15 nil, no like, one oh, I've ever met really enjoys that. Yeah. Like everyone likes to play in those tight one nil, two nil games or people like to watch sport that's close. Like you go watch a game of any Australian sport, let's pick AFL, you go watch NBA basketball or whatever the sport is. If it's a blowout, people tune out and they stop caring. So inherently yeah. there's this this want to see evenly matched people try to compete and then there'll be an inevitable winner and loser in a game. And then all of a sudden it's, you know, how they respect each other afterwards. They sort of come together and shake hands and exactly. say a like, good, good job. And it's like, we, we like that as a species. It's, it's what helped us get to this point. Yeah. And it helps you both. Uh, it helps you both get better. So the person who's way better is actually very motivated to help the other person get better, whether it's through showing them certain drills, like I might show you a bunch of different things with the hacky sack to help you with, you know, certain things to consider, and then you might get better and better, and then we'll have an even better match on the court. Um, And, or if, you know, say I'm versing someone like Mac, who's we're very evenly matched, then we pull out the, our best possible play when we're, when we're competing against each other, we pull out some, ridiculous shots that we probably wouldn't have got if we weren't versing each other at that similar level and so that that sort of element of community um, and tribal bonding as well as that little bit of competitive hierarchy is a big big part of how we improve as a species i think yeah and and like in the follow-up and it's one of the things that you've mentioned before it's the way the world is currently Constructed play has seemingly been like this thing that's been relegated to children, and it's mm. mostly in say organized sports. Like, because you and I both live in Brisbane, so we might go down to the parks. So we, when we used to live next door to each other, go down the park, kick the hacky sack, we'd have our meetings outside as movement catch ups, yeah. but you don't see a lot of people outside playing at the park. Whereas now, both being clinicians, you sort of hear and see and meet the parents of a lot of children are spending a lot more times indoors studying on their iPads and then they'll go play their sport, whether it's swimming or netball or volleyball, but they don't just go out and do what you said, like wrestle and climb trees and Mm. have what you would define as more of a naturalistic upbringing, which is changed the way that society is viewing play and what play is. Yeah. And it is, it's like, we talk about all of these factors with play. It's all aimed at, creating more adaptable and more resilient individuals who will survive and thrive better in their environment. And our genes really expect all of that movement play. Like it, we are, we all know that like we talked about in the movement nutrition episode, it's very sedentary culture. Um, 
And when kids don't get all of that exposure to natural movement play, then they actually, their musculoskeletal systems and their bodies in general become less resilient. And then they, like you said, they go out and play some kind of sport like soccer or um, football or whatever. And they're much more likely to get injured because they're not actually doing all of these other things around those activities to make sure that their body is adaptable and resilient when they're, when they are competing in those sports. Yeah. And I think just having a baseline understanding of like the developmental process. So you can see how children naturally move from zero to one, that ontogenesis period. And then you understand a lot of the neurologically inbuilt sort of evolutionary movements that humans had slash have had the entire time. And you can see a lot of like, like understanding of the biomechanics and how the neuromuscular system works. And then you can see where there could be useful going forward. So as you, you know, I both know, like some people just don't move, say, well, turning, they just struggle to turn because a lot of their training or life is sitting, cycling in this way. So when they go to play a sport, they're trying to turn. Well, you haven't been practicing rolling on the ground or mm. trying to you know do things that incorporate that sort of plane of movement for a long time. And you're not going to be as resilient. You're just in say that, movement plane so then all of a sudden there is a lack of movement resiliency let alone being a more resilient human so and we see that a lot like with the way that the gym culture has been for many years which is now i think starting to change quite a bit particularly in the last two years Mm. and particularly with like this whole movement from tfc and others like players slowly coming back in and people are understanding how not important how vital play is to every aspect of your life Mm. Mm. And it's, it's not just that physical aspect, like it, playing with movement. I think a really great example is uh, say a hacky sack or a beam. If you get on a beam, then the amount of different movements, it's almost like the movements are never truly the same. You get so much variability while you're trying to balance on this beam. And, and there's just so many different variables that come into what makes you uh, keep your stability and that provides so much more nutrition than just um you know doing say squats where it's one linear motion and it's very repetitive in the same thing obviously you can do both but you need to have that level of variability in order for not only your muscles and joints and everything to become more adaptable but for your nervous system to become more adaptable and also for your brain just to to get that uh time where it's just full full focus and um, actually enjoying and that there are a lot of sort of, there's a lot of neurochemistry that Huberman, Andrew Huberman talks about in his podcast that is involved with play and a release of, you know, adrenaline and dopamine and um, serotonin and, and so on. And all of these chemicals that come together to actually give you a really enjoyable experience. And so there's a lot of physical and mental benefits, not to mention, obviously, like we talked about, if you're playing with other people then you get that mental benefit of creating stronger connections with others in your community. Yeah. And I think to even just like touch on that just a little bit deeper, like I use balance a lot in clinic and I use a lot of it to just not even as a rehab tool as people to get out and do, because when you let those uh, neurochemicals off, they are going to have this inertia where if you do some balance work for 10 minutes you have a few areas you fall off the next sort of 20 30 minutes those neurochemicals are still there and what it can do is highlight 
uh, your next learning block and it can mm. make you remember things a lot better because you're a lot more attentive because the adrenaline's up. You, you've got the right neurochemistry going on. So when it comes to the mental side, doing that physical work, which is just play really on a beam, you're going to allow yourself to have more mental clarity and more focus. And that's the beautiful part of just understanding those little subtleties. And like you spoke about, like the whole idea of being adaptable and robust as a human being resilient. If you're talking about a squat, a squat is just a very fixed movement that targets a very sort of a number of joints and muscles. And they're like, you can do a deep squat, you can do a normal squat, quarter squat, but it's, it's sagittal plane. It's very locked in and it reduces what we call the degrees of freedom. So the ways in which your body may move. Mm. What I think people should understand is like, and one of the reasons why you love the beam and the hacky sack is because you add in all these other movements, naturally that's how we move. We always move with rotation no matter how much we try. Whereas when you try to do a squat, it's so locked in that your body's trying to find ways to move in other spots. You're fighting against what is kind of like natural movement. Like most people, even when they squat, you can see that they're not always dead straight. They're just like, you know, body wet squat, little turn here, little turn there. Yeah. And by allowing yourself to explore those movements, like variety really, you don't get so caught up in, I must squat this way, only this way. And you don't get fearful of movement you mm. allow more of that adaptable enjoying sort of experience with movement versus being frightened of it all. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. And this is not to say, you know, we, we always like to come back to the fact that there is a role for that sort of more structured and, you know, potentially, you know, more controlled movements and especially in the rehab context, like you, it may be that you do just need to build up strength and mobility in a certain area and, Often it, it may not involve things that feel like play um, and you may have to follow a program of repetitions and increase gradually over time. But the key there is that you're actually then integrating that new found capacity. So the new, the increased strength and mobility, integrating that into tasks that are really relevant or uh, meaningful or enjoyable to you. And that's, that's where that play element comes in because your body and your nervous system isn't going to hang on to the range just because you do some strength and mobility training. You do need to then express that strength and mobility in other tasks throughout your life. If you just do that and then you don't actually integrate that in other movement activities, then it's unlikely to stick around for long. Yeah. And, and it, it quickens the process. I think that's the, the part that unless you've experienced it and seen it, like if you do say, and like I've shown you some of those, like what we call coordinative movements where you can get people linking hands to feet and like, or shoulders to hips. But if you get them on the beam pretty quickly afterwards to then try and play with this new range, because it creates the errors that then highlights the spots for the brain to go, I need to get better at this. And then all of yeah. a sudden the adaptation comes much faster than it would if I just said, okay, I'm going to get you to do this, like one stretch here and one stretch there. Mm. Like you add in more, what is sort of, uh, unrealistic um, positions you can hold. Like you can't hold a lot of the positions on the beam because some of them are just so quick and so different to what you would do in normal life. Your body's just constantly learning and then it makes the process so much quicker for learning, a lot more enjoyable for learning. And if you film it and you fall off, it makes it enjoyable for us as well, which is always a good thing. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah, it's like a, on that note, it's, Play is that exploration of contingencies is how Huberman describes it. It's if I do this, what happens? If I do that, 
what happens. And like, like I said, that's that kind of tinkering uh, approach where you just tweak different variables. But a lot of that doesn't necessarily have to be conscious. So if you stand on a beam and you just fall off, you keep falling off, falling off. And this is the experience most people have when they first get on a beam is like, you get on, like oh, that's, that's harder than I expected. <laughs> wow. Okay. Get mm. back on. Oh, fall off. Get back on. Same with like a slack line or any, any kind of balance challenge like that. And then over time and reps, mostly with reps, um, <laughs> then you, your brain figures out, okay, well, when I try that, to stabilize, it doesn't work. So I need to try something else. And it just is it constantly exploring these different ways of moving and stabilizing until it gets the right one. And when it gets the right one, you get that little hit of like, oh, I did it. Okay, sweet. That worked. And then it's like, okay, well, now if I add this, now if I squat down on the beam or if I do, you know, change my stance, now how do I stabilize? And it's just this exploration of all these different contingencies. And the feedback, it gives you that instant feedback of whether or not it was the right strategy because you either step off the beam or you stay on it. And you get that really nice feeling of, I guess, achievement when you do stay on the beam and maintain stability. Which has yeah, been really useful from a clinical setting. But also one of the things that I found, uh, I teach a lot of people like low grade plyometric work very quickly where possible because a lot of plyometric work is going to be more reactive it's going to be a lot more unconscious in the way that you try it and when you're teaching people to hop or to leap from one foot to the other for the first time there's always going to be a few reps where they don't know really what they're doing when they haven't jumped in a while because a lot of the adults haven't they haven't played in a while and when they hit their first good one like they know before you tell them a hundred percent of the time that that was a good one. Yeah. Like they know and like, damn, that it. felt good. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, that was perfect. Do that again. And straight away, all my feedback is it was like, it's really good. Do it again. Don't even try to cue it because they know inherently what feels good. Right. Mm -hmm. And some people know that they're off balance. Some people, they know they learn too much on the heel or on their toes. And it's quite interesting when I took that idea from you of like, you know, using the beam a little bit more in clinic and then actually linking it with some of those things quickly, you figure out people know what feels good. And yeah. when they go back to say their old pattern, like, man, that feels a bit funny. It's like, yeah, it does. And that's and not because you were doing anything wrong. It's just, you didn't have that variety of movement. Now you've opened up this whole new spectrum of movement, which is going to make you more resilient. And when you tell people that, and then they get to experience it, the confidence of people and self-efficacy goes up through the roof. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that ability from a clinician's point of view really came from me trying to incorporate play as much as possible. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think, a lot of clinicians and, and if you're a clinician listening to this, or even if you're just someone who, who works with people, it could be a PT. It can feel a bit weird um, trying to incorporate elements of play into, um, into your session. And you, I think people sh tend towards the things that they can really quantify and they can go, okay, we did this many reps of this exercise. And therefore, you know, this next session, we do this and this, and this, and like I said, you can, you can definitely use that approach, but you will find it's, it can be very powerful to combine that with um, elements of play like Tom has just talked about. And people, like, like um, Tom said, people really feel when they've done something right, especially when you, do, when, you, when you use activities or you use constraints 
that give them that immediate feedback. Um, uh, yeah, it helps give them that immediate feedback. And then um, it's both of you going, oh, yeah, that, that looked good and that felt good. Sweet. And then the brain kind of locks in that contingency and locks in that strategy so that it can use it again. Which is exactly what most people are trying to achieve. They just don't always look at it from a, a play-based model. They, yeah. I think every, everyone wants to help people and everyone wants to try and give people like the most resiliency they can. And just with what's gone on say the last 40, 60 years, there's a lot of been like, we've got to strengthen things. And like you said, it, it's got a, a very good place at certain times. But as we get more research and more understanding, people are now like, if I can do some work, and then I can link it to play, then all of a sudden things are a lot quicker. Things are a lot more fun. Mm. People feel better. You make better communities and like your overall psychological health seems to go up because you're having more wins in the day. Like, and mm. it's just through feeling like you can move better. Like, I don't think there's anyone who I've ever met who said they, they wish they couldn't move better in something, whether it's flexibility, like stronger or more endurance. Like we always want a little bit more of something and play is a very good way to get some of those little wins rolling. Mm-hmm. yeah absolutely and I th- leading on obviously from all of that evolutionary context and we've started getting into it anyway but in the modern mm. context the thing is that we we've, we're talking as if play has been lost and in large part it has especially movement play but everyone still mm. loves playing regardless of their age so we've just invented different ways that um, different ways to play that seem to suit the more sedentary culture. So mostly it's specialized athletes. Uh, and this is in terms of adults. Obviously we all sort of expect kids to play. Um, but in terms of adults playing, it's like really just specialized athletes when they're, they're competing regularly in their chosen sports, or there is obviously that domain of um, casual sports, but it's still in that structured sport context. It's quite rare mm. to see a bunch of adults just out there um, climbing trees or kicking a hacky sack around. Obviously, you do see it. Um, mm. Certain people in uh, Milton, Orkinflower will see it, um, but uh, it's, it's not that common. And we, a lot of people will tend to um, stick to more sedentary play behaviors like board games, card games, word games, video games. Um, but even those, those are really, they're, they're great. There's nothing wrong with those things and they are a great way to connect. And, um, you know, I love myself some, some Monopoly deal and it's a great, um, great game, great game. And, you know, getting together with your family and friends and playing board games is awesome. Um, but it's, I think it's a, a good example of how you can see that humans do really love to play. Um, it's just that culturally we've sort of started weeding out a lot of the movement play that we would naturally do. And, and even with kids who we expect to play a lot, um, we've kind of began limiting or encouraging them to do less of the certain risky, risky ones like wrestling or climbing trees and um, throwing things and, and things like that. And, you know, there's, there's, some merit to that. I understand people don't want to, don't want their kids to get hurt or don't want their kids to hurt other people. Um, but if, if a child grows up without exploring those contingencies, um, then they're much more likely to do harm in the future without knowing. It's like a great example <clears throat> I really like is the, uh, when puppies play fight. So if they play fight with each other and, you know, they've got their sharp puppy teeth and they bite a little bit too hard on, on the other puppy, then that puppy goes, eh, 
and squeals and then like they stop and they go, oh, are you okay? And then they, they start again and that puppy learns how hard to bite so that it's, you know, it's not too much. And then when a human comes and starts training a dog and every time that, that puppy bites the human, then the human goes, oh, no biting, regardless of how hard it is, then the puppy doesn't actually learn how to control its bite and then becomes an adult dog with a much stronger bite, but it doesn't actually know how to control that, um, that intensity of that bite. And so it's, it's similar with kids. Like we, they need to explore how much is too much and, you know, they need to explore some level of that risk so that they can actually um, become more, uh, yeah, more risk, better at risk management as adults. Well, they become adaptable and they become under, they, they learn to understand risk better. So one of the good things, and like this always gets passed down through generations, each generation as we go through, hopefully we learn something and we pass it on. So we know that fire is bad when it is too close to you, right? Mm. So you don't just let a toddler walk near the fire. You might carry them or hold their hand towards the fire when they get too close you say no that's too close it's it's really hot and you you teach them through like it's it's risk mitigation in one sense but you have to expose them to the risk like could you imagine if someone was just devoid of ever seeing fire and the first time they saw it like they oh what is that like when they're adult like there's a reason you expose your kids to water particularly in australia so they don't drown when they get Mm. older because we have a lot of water around it's the reason you make your kids eat certain foods because you know that nutritionally they probably need to get a little bit of this and a little bit of that versus just eating mcdonald's every day Mm. like we're, we're, we're constantly looking at the world through risks and can we manage certain risks and there's no difference here with like movement. You should to a point say that your child climb a small ladder. That's why we have jungle gyms, right? We, they're mm-hmm. there for a reason. They're just not the trees or the, the forest that they used to be. And that is a way I think of humans trying to mitigate some of those risks and bring that play base into the city life, particularly. Yeah. Otherwise we would never have built the playground. Yeah, and exactly. Yeah. You just learn that through experience and then pass that on where possible and, Again, there's no right or wrong. It's just all explorative. And you've just, you've got to find what you feel comfortable with risk-wise and what you feel comfortable letting your child experience risk-wise, I think. Mm. And, and get that from your community as well. Like, what yeah. is your community like? And generally, I think the more you as an adult play and explore risks yourself, the more comfortable you are letting your child explore risks. And, you know, we're, neither of us are parents, so we're not trying to tell anyone how to parent or, or anything no. like that. Um, it's more just bringing that that awareness to the importance of kids learning to manage their own risks um, rather than adults always managing the risks for them because then you know they'll eventually be an adult and they need to learn they need to know how to do that themselves um yeah yeah well and then i mean on that point then how would you play Let's, let's, let's ah. give some like how-tos and some, some to-dos as we get towards the end of the podcast. Yes. So I play it in a lot of different ways. Um, I, think, <laughs> I think one of the coolest, one of the, one of the best places to start maybe is to look back at your childhood and to think about all the ways that you did enjoy playing. And I was quite fortunate growing up at my parents' um, were very encouraging for me to try a lot of different sports and just try my hand at as many different things as possible and, and, you know, musical instruments and 
they had this, it was quite a playful approach to parenting, I think. And it was never like, you have to do this or you have to do that. But it was like, oh, you should give that a go and see if you like it and try that and you know, try that, try this. And so it was a lot of that exploration of contingencies. And I think most people have experienced that to some degree, maybe not the same degree, but at least they enjoyed playing something uh, or many things when they were young. And it's, if you've lost track of that, then you can look back to your childhood and go, Oh yeah, I really did like climbing trees or I really did like playing soccer. And, you know, I just lost track of that. Um, and so that could be a good place to start. doesn't mean that you have to race out and go climb a tree or play soccer, but it's, it's a, it's a foundation. You go, well, I know I used to enjoy playing that. Maybe there's some level of that that I can, um, re-explore so maybe I can go down maybe I can ask Tom to go down to the park and kick a soccer ball with me it doesn't have to be structured soccer but it can be like recreating it to a degree because you've got that foundation um, and you feel confident like if because we both grew up playing soccer so it's just natural for us like we like kicking hands why the hacky has become such a big thing and you your what you put out in the world you're going to find that community in a sense mm-hmm. so like mm-hmm. if you asked say me and i didn't want to go that's all right you just ask the next person and eventually someone is going to say yes and yeah. then all of a sudden you start finding a community that is more in line with that value of play or your movement catch-ups is probably i think that's how we pretty much phrase it right like every time we catch up for a meeting or, a bu- or some business it's a lot of mucking around scattered with a little bit of business and it's our way of doing business because we both like playing mm. and it's honestly it's a very productive business session and yeah. it's a very fun business session and it just it comes out of rather than sit down and let's let's talk it's there uh, we'll just get creative and see what happens and then go do a little bit of work after when we're by ourselves to just plan out what we've done which is you know finding your own environment and community <laughs> through again exploring options exactly and yeah like you said it's we often actually come up with the best ideas because it is in that unstructured way. We're having a chat. It's in between rallies with the hacky, have a bit of a chat. And then afterwards we can distill the information. Um, But it's, you know, it's yeah. Finding that community that you can play with. So finding something in your childhood that uh, you think something or many things in your childhood that you, you know, that you enjoyed and would like to re-explore finding a play partner or, or a group that could do that thing with you. Um, doesn't have to be something you have done before as well. You might think of a new skill that inspire you um, that you'd like to explore. So a few years back, I, I'd never, I'd done a bit of gymnastics growing up, but I'd never really gotten into hand balancing as a thing. And then a few years back, I was like, Oh, that would be cool. I really like the idea of being able to balance on my hands. And then I found a coach and, you know, it, it was inspiring. It wasn't like, Oh, I really want to improve my overhead strength. Um, but my overhead strength improved a lot as well as my balance. And I had a really fun time doing it. It was very challenging, mind you. It, was, it mm. felt a lot, a lot like work mm. as well. Yeah. Um, but it's led to now this ability to balance on my hands, which I enjoy every day and keeps my you know, shoulder strength good, shoulder mobility good. Um, but it's, it's more just uh, something that inspired me originally. And you can, you could apply that to anything. It could be martial arts. It could be surfing, could be dancing, could be, um, you know, anything, anything that makes you go, Ooh. And I think it's actually probably even good if it scares you a bit, if you're like, Ooh, I don't know if I could do that. Um, but I really want to, but I don't think I could. There is a way. I think that's the, that's, I think that's like the best one. I think that anything that scares you means that 
like the feeling that people get with nervousness, right, is essentially the same neurochemical pathway as excitement. The only difference is the way in which your mindset is put towards that mm. feeling. Like if you're scared of something, like if you stepped back and go, am I scared or am I excited? Like, mm. and again, it's a continuum. You might be scared and excited. I don't know. But you, those are the things that you probably most want to try and you should probably give it a go. Barring you don't hurt someone else or doing something, you know, that is going to endanger others. Mm. But or yourself, when you're yeah. scared, of, yeah, yeah. But that's not, I mean, sometimes you can get hurt. A little bit of danger. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A little bit, a little bit of danger. But I think like it's, it's interesting you mentioned a coach. Like, I think that's one of the key things I've found is, you know, even being a physio, the role in which I first came in and you first came into our careers as, I think we've adapted it and changed it. Like a lot of what we do is coach people through moments or injuries or things in their life through different mechanisms to historical based things. And I think that's where that whole idea of personal play identity can be useful because in that sense, your handstand balance coach is the, the master and you are like his apprentice in a sense. Mm. So the hierarchy is set and then you're listening to him and you're picking up tips so you can play at the same level. Cause like, obviously when you watch someone who is good, it makes you want to be good. Like you said earlier, and it makes that person up here. They want to help you who is uh, not at that same level yet come up to that level. Mm. And when you understand where you sort of sit and then you start exploring those options, like, okay, I want to do, I know, say slacklining, and I have no idea how to start. Well, most people start questioning and Googling, looking for community, so there's some community work. You start trying to find play partners or groups to meet up and start practicing. And that hierarchy starts, your identity sort of gets started and you slowly learn and experience things. And what was scary no longer is scary. And if you can, through that little bit of, you know, nervousness, a little bit of being scared, you will find a great benefit. Mm. Yeah, 100%. You can almost use, um, I've heard this before on, on different or from different people, but you can use fear as a bit of a compass. So it's like, it's like mm. you said, it's that it's, it's a bit of fear. It's a bit of excitement. Um, it's that sort of, oh, I'd love to be able to do that. But like, oh, it's, that seems a bit scary. Or, or even the process of, you know, going and getting a lesson or a coaching session or something feels like, oh, it's a bit scary to actually take that step that's a good sort of way to go, okay, well, you probably should follow that path. And the cool thing is if you end up not liking it and just, <laughs> just stop. you can just try something else. Um, <laughs> yeah. think about, there's but, possibilities are endless. Exactly. And uh, you'll never regret just having a crack at something, I think, uh, unless you do it completely recklessly. Like you say, okay, I want to learn to surf. I'm going to get a surfboard and I'm going to go out in these five meter waves you know, you have to do it progressively. I think there is that role for, uh, and that's where the, the lessons and the coaching can come in and you, mm. you work at the right level, but pushing through some discomfort when you are at the right level, um, you, you'll be surprised how quickly your brain switches into like, Oh, okay. I love, I'm excited for this thing. Now I want to get, I want to get to it and, and keep practicing. Yeah. And I mean, the other point that you had here is how to play. And this is something that you and I talked on is like gamifying things. Mm. And like going back to your point, we've done, we've, instead of just moving for play, we've just sort of gamified play in a sense where we like Monopoly Deal or Wordle on your phone or Xbox, PlayStation, whatever it is. And like one of the ones like, I mean, rubbish is my favorite one. And to this day, I still do it. If I have rubbish in a shopping center and I'm walking through, I'm still going to try and like either basketball shoot it or lob it in as I walk past, provided it won't <laughs> like make a fluid mess. And for no other reason than it's quite fun. 
right? Yeah. And you get that direct result of it either goes in the trash can or you miss and you're still going to go pick it up and put it in anyway. And yeah. it just makes taking out the trash more fun in all of life. And like, it's, it's very simple. I don't plan it. It just happens. And it's just, it, honestly, I don't mind taking out the rubbish, not for any reason other than like shooting at things. Mm. It's just like, it's fun and it's fun. And yeah. you can do that with anything, I imagine. Yeah, it is. It, yeah, it's, it's, come, that comes into our last point, which is just having that playful approach to life. Like you, a lot of people get very serious. And I think this lines up with what you said at the start about, the opposite of play being depression. Like if you're too serious and structured and rigid in your life, then first of all, it's not very fun. And second of all, you generally don't get the results that you want. Um, no. You need to have that, that approach to life that is a little bit explorative and creative and, you know, you tinker with things and, and you work with what you've got. Like one of the, like we've talked about today, one of the coolest ways to play is the most simple, just, standing literally standing on a beam or you know kicking around a hacky sack and often this the simple things are really the best and can make you the most adaptable because it's all about trying to work with your body's movement and trying to better understand how your body moves and how you can improve at certain things and and it doesn't have to be a grand you know you don't have to sign up and join a um you know join a soccer team or go and get you know 10 surf lessons um, it can just be as simple as balancing for five minutes at home and just integrating a little bit of play, or like you said, just chucking, chucking the rubbish into the bin and, <laughs> and failing a few times and, and just trying to find those opportunities to get a little bit more play into your life. And, and it's, it's similar to the movement nutrition. Like it seems like not much, but it is, it adds up. It's like a lot of these little play micronutrients that add up into your life to make it a lot more um, fun, enjoyable and, and meaningful, I think. And, and like on that point, it's one of something that I learned from original strength, which I think is a really good takeaway message is like, there is no failure within movement right mm. it's it's your movement is good it's better or it's best and essentially wherever your body is now for whatever you're thinking of doing whether it's you know trying curling surfing hacking getting a balance beam running jumping i don't know like whatever it is you're gonna start at good now is that good as good as someone else maybe maybe not but you will get better if you want to and you and you put some time and a little bit of like work and have a bit of play with it but don't frown upon it. Just like, Oh, I start here. I'm going to get better. And honestly, it makes life fun. And I can tell you to this day, I still miss a lot of shots into those bins. I have thrown a few banana peels over a bin. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> yep, but same. again, I, I, I'm still learning, still learning, but it's still, it's just fun. Um, yeah. and I think that's a, it's a really good way to approach most things in life. And I, I know that you do. I know I do. I know everyone in the, the TFT community does and something that Nick is really, keen on promoting and it's yeah i think it's just a really good takeaway sort of message to finish on yeah exactly just gamify your life be more playful um and practice practice playing with movement and mm. you will you will experience the benefits so yeah that yeah that's a good place to wrap it up i think it's will give you some ideas and things to work with in the lesson notes of like places to start. And obviously there's certain areas that um, TFC really promotes and in, in terms of, you know, hacky sack, beam, um, balance play, things like that. 
Um, but it's just up to you how you want to apply it. And uh, we'll also have those resources linked so that you can delve into this more. This is, you know, was a, a really um, overarching general bird's eye view of play, but you can go much deeper into it um, with those with those books and resources that we've recommended. So um, yeah, get stuck in and just reach out anytime. If you've got any questions, we're always happy to have a chat and um, let us know if you have any, well, let us know your experiences as well with, with what you've uh, yeah, I think that, with that would be really cool just to know yeah. uh, like other people's experiences of play and like how you've found ways to incorporate play in life or in like relationships or communities or clinically or anything. Cause it, it's a really cool way for us to also learn. Um, mm, and mm -hmm. like, and again, like it, as these lessons go on and get re-recorded re or get better, it's just going to create a better community here and understanding of play. So I'm actually Absolutely. really looking forward to people giving us some examples of play. I think that could Me be too. quite fun. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm. Sweet. Yeah, well, right. well, thanks for listening, everyone. And uh, we'll catch you on our next podcast, which I believe will be ground living in, in a few modules time. I'm pretty sure it is. Yeah. Awesome. All right. All right. See you guys. Cheers, guys.